Section 32 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. Luke, Volume 1, by J. C. Ryle. Chapter 6, verses 12 to 19. Christ's Prayer Before Ordaining the Twelve Apostles. Names and Positions of the Apostles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Luke, chapter 6, verses 12 to 19. And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray, and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James, and John, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zealotus, and Judas the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, who was also the traitor. And he came down with them, and stood in the plain, and the company of his disciples, and a great multitude of people out of all Judea and Jerusalem, and from the sea-coast of Tyre and Sidon, which came to hear him, and to be healed of their diseases. And they that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed and the whole multitude sought to touch him, for there went virtue out of him, and healed them all. These verses describe the appointment of our Lord Jesus Christ's twelve apostles. That appointment was the beginning of the Christian ministry. It was the first ordination, and an ordination conducted by the great head of the church himself. Since the day when the events here recorded took place, there have been many thousand ordinations, myriads of bishops, elders and deacons have been called to the office of the ministry, and often with far more pomp and splendor than we read of here. But never was there so solemn an ordination as this. Never were men ordained who have done so much for the church and the world as these twelve apostles. Let us observe, firstly, in these verses, that when our Lord ordained his first ministers, he did it after much prayer. We read that he went out into a mountain to pray, and continued all night in prayer to God, and when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. We need not doubt that there is a deep significance in this special mention of our Lord's praying upon this occasion. It was intended to be a perpetual lesson to the Church of Christ. It was meant to show the great importance of prayer and intercession on behalf of ministers, and particularly at the time of their ordination. Those to whom the responsible office of ordaining is committed should pray that they may lay hands suddenly on no man. Those who offer themselves for ordination should pray that they may not take up work for which they are unfit, and not run without being sent. The lay members of the church, not least, should pray that none may be ordained, but men who are inwardly moved by the Holy Ghost. Happy are those ordinations, in which all concerned have the mind that was in Christ, and come together in a prayerful spirit. Do we desire to help forward the cause of pure and undefiled religion in the world? Then let us never forget to pray for ministers, and especially for young men about to enter the ministry. The progress of the gospel, under God, will always depend much on the character and conduct of those who profess to preach it. An unconverted minister can never be expected to do good to souls. He cannot teach properly what he does not feel experimentally. 
from such men let us pray daily that the church may be delivered converted ministers are god's special gift man cannot create them if we would have good ministers we must remember our lord's example and pray for them their work is heavy their responsibility is enormous their strength is small let us see that we support them and hold up their hands by our prayers in this and in too many other cases the words of st james are often sadly applicable ye have not because ye ask not james chapter 4 verse 2 we do not ask god to raise up a constant supply of converted young men to fill our pulpits and god chastises our neglect by withholding them let us observe secondly how little we are told of the worldly position of the first ministers of the christian church four of them we know were fishermen one of them at least was a publican most of them probably were galileans none of them so far as we can see from the new testament was great or rich or noble or highly connected not one was a pharisee or scribe or priest or ruler or elder among the people all were apparently unlearned and ignorant men acts chapter 4 verse 13 all were poor there is something deeply instructive in the fact which is now before us it shows us that our lord jesus christ's kingdom was entirely independent of help from this world his church was not built by might or by power but by the spirit of the living god zechariah chapter 4 verse 6 it supplies us with an unanswerable proof of the divine origin of christianity a religion which turned the world upside down while its first preachers were all poor men must needs have been from heaven if the apostles had possessed money to give their hearers or been followed by armies to frighten them an infidel might well deny that there was anything wonderful in their success but the poverty of our lord's disciples cuts away such arguments from beneath the infidel's feet with a doctrine most unpalatable to the natural heart with nothing whatever to bribe or compel obedience a few lowly galileans shook the world and changed the face of the roman empire one thing only can account for this the gospel of christ which these men proclaimed was the truth of god let us remember these things if we ever strive to do any work for christ and beware of leaning on an arm of flesh let us watch against the secret inclination which is natural to all to look to money or learning or high patronage or great men's support for success if we want to do good to souls we must not look first to the powers of this world we should begin where the church of christ began we should seek agents filled with the holy ghost let us observe lastly in these verses that one whom our lord chose to be an apostle was a false disciple and a traitor that man was judas iscariot we cannot for a moment doubt that in choosing judas iscariot our lord knew well what he was doing he who could read hearts certainly saw from the beginning that notwithstanding his profession of piety judas was a graceless man and would one day betray him why then did he appoint him to be an apostle the question is one which has perplexed many yet it admits of a satisfactory answer like everything our lord did it was done advisedly deliberately and with deep wisdom 
it conveyed lessons of high importance to the whole church of christ the choice of judas was meant to teach ministers humility they are not to suppose that ordination necessarily conveys grace or that once ordained they cannot err on the contrary they are to remember that one ordained by christ himself was a wretched hypocrite let the minister who thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall again the choice of judas was meant to teach the lay members of the church not to make idols of ministers they are to esteem them highly in love for their work's sake but they are not to bow down to them as infallible and honor them with an unscriptural honor they are to remember that ministers may be successors of judas iscariot as well as of peter and paul the name of judas should be a standing warning to cease from man let no man glory in men first corinthians chapter three verse twenty one finally our lord's choice of judas was meant to teach the whole church that it must not expect to see a perfectly pure communion in the present state of things the wheat and the tares the good fish and the bad will always be found side by side till the lord comes again it is vain to look for perfection in visible churches we shall never find it a judas was found even among the apostles converted and unconverted people will always be found mixed together in all congregations notes luke chapter 6 verses 12 to 19 verse 12 in prayer to god the peculiarity of the greek words here has made some think that the meaning should have been rendered he continued all night in a house of prayer a place set apart for prayer to god that the jews had such praying houses is undeniable but whether such a house is referred to here is very doubtful out of the thirty-seven places in which the greek word occurs in the new testament there is only one other where it could be interpreted a place of prayer acts chapter sixteen verse thirteen and even there it is a disputed point there seems no necessity for leaving the sense given by our translators Baradius remarks that the expression which we translate prayer to god is a hebraism meaning most fervent and earnest prayer just as mountains of god and cedars of god in the old testament mean lofty mountains and high cedars psalm thirty six verse six psalm eighty verse ten isidore clarius in his orations on st luke published at venice in fifteen sixty five has some striking remarks on the disgraceful contrast between the manner in which the apostles were called to their office after a night spent in prayer and the manner in which ecclesiastical offices were filled up in italy in his own day he exposes the system of jobbing nepotism corruption and covetousness which universally prevailed on such occasions and enters a faithful protest against it it is singular enough that the tone of stella the spanish commentator on st luke in expounding this passage is precisely similar to that of clarius verse thirteen chose twelve named apostles corderius gives a curious passage from rabinus marius on the number twelve bringing together the instances of that number being specially chosen in the bible he says the number twelve which consists of three times four points out that the apostles would preach the faith of the holy trinity throughout the four quarters of the world the number is prefigured in the old testament by many examples 
the twelve sons of Jacob, the twelve princes of the children of Israel, the twelve fountains in Elim, the twelve stones in Aaron's breastplate, the twelve loaves of showbread, the twelve spies sent forth by Moses, the twelve stones of which the altar was made, the twelve stones taken out of the Jordan, and the twelve oxen which supported the brazen laver. In the New Testament the number is shown in the twelve stars on the crown of the woman in Revelation, and the twelve foundations and twelve gates of the heavenly Jerusalem seen by John. It is interesting to remark that out of the twelve apostles we have no less than three pairs of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John, Jude and James the son of Alphaeus. Verse 14. Bartholomew. It is thought by many that Bartholomew is Nathaniel, whom we read of in the first chapter of John. Jesenius, Montanus, and Ferris maintain this. But there seems no warrant for the conjecture, except it be the fact that we find Bartholomew always mentioned in close connection with Philip, who called Nathaniel to Christ. Verse 15. Jamus the son of Alphaeus. This appears to be that James whom St. Paul calls the Lord's brother, Galatians chapter 1 verse 19. The fact that he is here called the son of Alphaeus goes far to prove that the word brother in the New Testament must not be taken too literally, and admits of being understood as cousin. The Alphaeus here mentioned must either be a different person from the father of Matthew, or else Matthew must have been the brother of James and Jude. St. Mark says, that Matthew, or Levi, was the son of Alphaeus. It was this James who took the lead in the council, Acts chapter 15, verse 19, and seems to have been regarded as the moderator or chief of the apostles in Jerusalem. He was also the writer of the epistle which bears his name. It is remarkable that like Matthew and Simon the Canaanite, we never read of his saying anything, or coming forward in any way, while our Lord lived. Yet after our Lord's ascension, none seems to have had so prominent a position in the church. Verse 16. Judas, the brother of James. This apostle is remarkable for having had three names, Jude, Lebaeus, and Thaddeus. He it was who wrote the epistle which bears his name. Iscariot. Many conjectures have been made as to the meaning of this name none of them are satisfactory. Some think that it means that he was a man of the tribe of Issachar, some that he was a man of Kirioth, a small town in Judah, or Kerioth, a town of Ephraim. Nothing certain is known about the subject. Let it be noted, among other reasons for our Lord's choice of a traitor to be an apostle, that the choice finally supplied a powerful indirect evidence of the purity, blamelessness, and faultlessness of our Lord's conduct and ministry. When our Lord was accused before the high priest and Pontius Pilate, if anything could have been proved against him, the traitor Judas Iscariot was exactly the witness who would have proved it. The mere fact that Judas never came forward to give evidence against our Lord is a convincing evidence that nothing could be proved against him. No man is so well qualified to expose another's faults and inconsistencies, if they really exist, as one who has been on intimate terms with him. Judas never appeared against our Lord because he could not allege anything to his disadvantage. Ford quotes a passage from Anselm on this point. Judas is chosen that the Lord might have an enemy among his domestic attendants, 
for that man is perfect who has no cause to shrink from the observation of a wicked man conversant with all his ways verse seventeen stood in the plain this expression should be noted it shows that the discourse which follows is different from that called the sermon on the mount verse nineteen virtue the word so translated is generally rendered power or strength and must not be taken as a moral quality here end of section thirty two